Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 483. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living series, our guest today is historian Ralph Nuremberger. This will be an excellent interview on a subject very much on our minds, presidential elections, as well as the veeps they choose and why. Ralph Nuremberger will be presenting three different Smithsonian Associates events, all of which we'll have links to in our show notes. Again, three different Smithsonian Associates events. This topic is that important. The United States has held 57 presidential elections since the first in 1789. Voters are invariably informed that the current one is the most important ever. But some elections have proven more significant and historic than others. These led to landmark political changes, including a constitutional amendment, the dissolution of major political parties, or changes in national policies, including those that altered civil rights for decades to come. Several elections had contested results in which the winner remained in doubt for weeks after the ballots were counted. Sound familiar? As the 2020 presidential election approaches, historian Ralph Nuremberger looks back on controversial elections where under myriad election rules of the day, all of which involved electors who cast two indistinguishable ballots. It took 36 votes in the House of Representatives before a winner was declared the winner. That and other fascinating facts will be discussed today. We're also going to be talking today about vice presidents. Over the years, presidential nominees' choices of a running mate have reflected everything from an afterthought to a carefully calculated balancing act. While the duties of the vice president are spelled out in the Constitution, how that person is selected and deployed in the campaign and in office seems to change with every election. This is fascinating stuff and we're right on time for our 2020 vote. Join me and historian Ralph Nuremberger as we talk and clarify the official aspects of the position of presidential elections, and we explore the importance of vice presidential nominees to the overall election. The shifting criteria used to make those decisions are, again, fascinating. You're going to love this show. Please join me in welcoming, via internet phone, historian Ralph Nuremberger. Ralph Nuremberger, welcome to the program. Well, Paul, thank you so much for the invitation. And well, thank you for your generous time and uh, for your time upcoming. You have got some time that you're going to be spending with Smithsonian and with us. You've got three upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentations, uh, two of which will be on presidential elections and then another on choosing a VP. So let's talk about the VP presentation for just a moment and and tell us, you know, maybe... Why is the second spot of such importance? And and maybe tell us what you're going to be covering across the board in the three presentations. We're going to put links up so that the audience can find them. But let's let's start with kind of that broad question: why that why that VP spot so important? And then and then what is it about the presidential elections? And it's just in general that you're going to be touching on your Smithsonian Associates presentations. Well, what's remarkable is that the VP spot was just not so important, um, and that's going to be a focus that I will start with. Uh, the first vice president, 
of the United States, John Adams, said that uh, he can't imagine anyone ever having come up with a less important or, or significant job. Uh, and he said the only part of the job that is real is waiting for the uh, incumbent to pass away. Otherwise, there's pretty much nothing to do. Uh, that can be shown in, in, in a rather interesting statistic, and that is 16 times prior to the passage of the 25th Amendment in 1967, uh, there were 16 times when the position of vice president became vacant. Uh, eight American presidents passed away, four from natural causes and four from assassinations. Seven vice presidents passed away, and one, John Calhoun, resigned. So 16 times the position was empty and they didn't bother, no one bothered filling it during that time. Uh, the most recent time that happened, for example, is when uh, John Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963. Lyndon Johnson became president and no one became vice president. Uh, the next vice president wasn't chosen until the election in 1964, Hubert Humphrey, so from November of 63 until January of uh, 65, there was no vice president at all. And so the position itself was viewed mainly as a caretaker if something happens to the president. Uh, other than that, the duties uh, listed for the vice president are rather limited. Uh, he presides over the Senate, uh, or he or she uh, presides over the Senate, and in case of a tie, uh, casts a deciding vote, uh, and otherwise the job itself is rather limited. It has taken on greater responsibility in recent years because of the complexity of uh, society and America's role in the world, and as a result, we have had some very good and strong vice presidents. Uh, the uh, couple that jumped to mind, uh, Dick Cheney, of course, was a powerful figure in uh, George W. Bush's administration. Al Gore was a significant uh, assistant to uh, Clinton when he was vice president. Uh, Joe Biden did a very good job as vice president as well. Uh, Pence has done a good job shoring up uh, a vital constituency for uh, President Trump uh, as well, although he is more of a follower uh, because of the way that Trump organizes the White House. Uh, so the position has really grown only in recent years. Uh, prior to that, it was not significant. One of the things to pay attention to, though, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry to go on for so long. No, no, I appreciate uh, it. Is, is um, when the choice of vice presidents, and we can talk about how vice presidents are chosen, which is a different topic, but there have been relatively few vice president choices that wound up being significant. Uh, the three that jump to my mind are the choice of Andrew Johnson as vice president by Abraham Lincoln in 1864, uh, the choice of Harry Truman as vice president in 1944, and the choice of Lyndon Johnson as vice president in 1960. Going back on that, when Lincoln was first elected in 1860, his vice president was an abolitionist. Uh, senator from uh, Maine by the name of Hannibal Hamlin. Mm. Uh, had Lincoln kept Hannibal Hamlin as his vice president when he was assassinated, uh, Hamlin would have been the next president. Instead, Lincoln thought that he might be defeated in the campaign in 1864 
felt that he needed support from the border states and selected Andrew Johnson, who was basically a racist, um, uh, pro-South to some degree, certainly did not share Lincoln's views on Reconstruction, and became president and flipped Lincoln's views. It was a total change. Had Hamlin been the uh, vice president again, uh, all of American history would have been different uh, because of the way that Reconstruction developed and what happened with African Americans thereafter. Similarly, in 1940, um, Franklin Roosevelt's vice president uh, was Henry Wallace, who was left-leaning. He wanted to share nuclear secrets uh, with the Soviets. He uh, he thought that he could deal with the Soviets, uh, but uh, Roosevelt became very concerned about his views, dropped him as the vice presidential candidate in 44, and selected Harry Truman, who ultimately uh, set the stage for America's role in the Cold War, uh, specifically the the building of NATO, the way that World War II ended the dropping of the bomb, most of which would not have happened had Wallace uh, remained as vice president or had Roosevelt passed away a few months sooner than he actually did. And similarly, another significant vice president uh, would have been Lyndon Johnson, and uh, who was able, after Kennedy's uh, assassination, to pass uh, the Civil Rights Act and the whole social agenda that he was able to get through. Uh, But these are three vice presidents who became president, uh, which is quite different than what you do as vice president. Uh, So uh, anyway, I've I've gone on a little longer probably than you wanted for this uh, uh, question. Well, Thank you. I do appreciate that depth. Our audience really likes the the details. This is a fascinating subject. Of course, we've got the 2020 presidential election coming up where you and I are speaking about 30, 34 or five days away from that big election. It's uh, everywhere. We can't even escape it. But you are going to be focusing on a couple of presidential elections in a couple of different spans of time. And I wonder why you picked those two. Well, I'm going to be giving two talks covering four presidential elections in the past. Ruth uh, Robbins, who does such a spectacular job together with her colleagues uh, running Smithsonian Associates and putting the programs together. Uh, I always start my talks by saying, if you look through their catalog and can't find something that's interesting to you, you must be dead. Uh, (laughs) There are just so many interesting and fascinating topics. Yes. Uh, uh, Ruth asked me to focus on two Uh, elections in the 19th century and two in the 20th century. So I would have picked uh, four different topics, uh, elections, uh, than the the ones I ultimately chose. Uh, The ones I'm going to look at on the first talk uh, will be the presidential election of 1800 and 1876. And they are extremely significant when you look at uh, what we are now facing. There were four times in American history Uh, when the electoral vote was contentious, when there was no um, clear answer to who won the electoral college. Uh, The first time that happened was 1800. The next time was 1824, then 1876, and then, of course, the Gore-Bush election in 2000. So 1800 and 1876 are significant for the following reasons. In 1800, uh, because of the way uh, electors cast their ballots, and this changed as a result of the 12th Amendment. 
each elector was given two pieces of paper, and there was nothing distinguishing these pieces of paper, uh, so they cast their ballots for the president and the vice president, uh, one on each piece of paper. Uh, Jefferson and his vice presidential candidate, Aaron Burr, each received 73 electoral votes. The electors cast one of their votes for Jefferson, one of their votes for Burr, and ultimately Burr and Jefferson wound up tied, even though uh, the race itself was between Jefferson and uh, John Adams uh, running for re-election. This then went to the House of Representatives, where just as now should the election today go to the House of Representatives and something we can talk about, uh, the House votes by state delegation, not by total members. And so Jefferson needed nine states uh, representatives to vote for him in order to be elected president out of the 16 states at the time. It took 36 ballots before they finally selected Jefferson as president, and then Burr became vice president. What is equally significant is that John Adams, who was engaged in a bitter fight with Jefferson. Uh, And and again, it's a fascinating race to see how these two former friends and later friends went at each other, their religion, their sexual preferences, uh, their political views, uh, and the list just goes on and on. But when Jefferson went to to be inaugurated, John Adams left town, uh, and it was a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, And that is the basis of our democracy. And that has now come up for discussion Uh, so much because President Trump has uh, declined to say whether he would accept uh, a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, And so that is one of the basic tenets of our American democracy. The election of 1876 also has a number of parallels uh, that are significant for today. It was an election pitting uh, the governor of New York, uh, Samuel Tilden, uh, against Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, who had been governor of Ohio. Uh, Ultimately, this is the only election in American history where a candidate received a majority of the popular vote, uh, just about 52% of the vote, and still lost. Uh, There have been other times when candidates received a plurality of the the popular votes and lost. For example, Hillary Clinton and Al Gore being the two most recent examples. But uh, Tilden won a majority of the votes and had 184 electoral votes, he needed 185. There were 20 that were in dispute, one from Oregon and three from uh, three southern states, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida. The state legislatures then selected delegates to come uh, to to serve as uh, electors and ultimately sent two sets of electors each. In fact, Florida sent three sets of electors to Washington. That created a problem of how do you decide which electors to listen to, uh, which in turn created a problem for Congress because the Senate was controlled by the Republicans, the House was controlled by the Democrats, and neither was willing to allow the other branch to make the final determination on who should be president. And as a result, they created an electoral commission consisting of five uh, senators, uh, three Republicans, two Democrats, five House members, three Democrats, two Republicans, and five Supreme Court justices, two Republicans, two Democrats, and an independent. Well, the independent could do arithmetic. He figured out it's going to be an 8-7 vote. 
he did not wish to be the final uh, decision maker, resigns from the Supreme Court, is replaced by a Republican justice or Republican-leaning justice, and as a result, the decision of one justice, Justice Davis, made every vote of this commission an 8-7 vote uh, choosing the president. And again, we are potentially facing something similar to this. There was an article in The Atlantic by uh, Bart Gelman uh, last week that uh, posed a similar scenario that may, might play out this time. So both the elections of 1800 and 1876 have uh, an analogies that might be significant for the uh, current race. Uh, the two other elections that I will be speaking about are just fascinating, but don't have similar parallels. Uh, the first is the election of 1912, which is the only time in American history that three of the candidates ultimately served as president. The Republican incumbent running for re-election, William Howard Taft, the previous Republican president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt running as a progressive, or as he called his party, the Bull Moose Party, and the Democrat Woodrow Wilson and all ultimately at some point in their lives served as president. Ultimately, uh, about 60% of Americans were Republican supporters, uh, but since the Republicans had two candidates, essentially, uh, Taft and Roosevelt, Wilson winds up winning with uh, just over 40% of the vote. A fascinating race, uh, significant, because Wilson then becomes the president during the uh, America's entry into World War One. And the other election uh, that I selected was 1948, and there the most famous uh, photograph is Harry Truman, who won, holding up a Chicago Tribune that says Dewey is the victor, mm. uh, showing that polls sometimes can be wrong. And so that, that was selected more for interest uh, than because of their, their current parallels. The other thing that I, I know that you're going to be speaking about, I, I read this in my research of you, that... You'll talk a little bit about the 25th Amendment, and we've certainly heard the 25th Amendment bandied about during the debating Congress, during uh, impeachment proceedings. What does the amendment really say about succession? Okay, the, the, the 25th Amendment came about, uh, I believe it was passed in uh, 1967. One of the leading sponsors of it was Birch Bayh uh, of Indiana, and essentially uh, the the Congress feared uh, that what if uh, John Kennedy had not been assassinated but significantly wounded uh, and was incapable uh, of serving as president but was still alive. And so they began to debate uh, and to discuss how to deal with questions of presidential disability as well as uh, presidential passing as well as the question of vice presidential vacancies, which we discussed a few minutes ago. In terms of uh, the president being succeeded by the vice president, the Constitution remarkably is a bit vague about that. The first time that happened uh, was in 1841, uh, when President William Henry Harrison passed away uh, only weeks after giving his inaugural address. And John Tyler, who was the vice president, immediately assumed the presidency. And uh, he was challenged in this. In fact, people called him his accidency. Uh, they didn't know what to call him. They didn't know whether he was president or acting president or how long he should serve as president or whether there should be an immediate election. 
Tyler said, I am president. He took the oath of office as president, moved into the White House, and stayed there for the rest of the four years of, of the term, setting the precedent, but it was not really clear. And every time a president passed away, the vice president did, in fact, uh, assume the presidency. But in order to clarify that, the 25th Amendment says, if a president passes away in office, the vice president becomes president. The next thing it says is that the vice president, together with the cabinet, has the capability of determining if a president is not uh, capable, either for mental or physical uh, reasons, of uh, running the country as president. And there it would take a vote of the cabinet and then of the Congress uh, to install the vice president as president, uh, as well as uh, the president was encouraged to inform the Congress uh, if there were times when the president was not capable of serving as president. For example, some presidents have had medical problems and would go in for an operation uh, and in those times, the vice president would then be acting as president. So it, the 25th Amendment served to clarify those issues. What it didn't do, and this is a problem that we may be facing uh, in this, uh, this year's election, is solve a lot of issues uh, if there is doubts about the election or the electoral vote. And that's uh, the, the last time Congress addressed that was in 1887, following the 1876 election, uh, when Congress passed an act dealing with that. And to be honest, uh, the act is extremely fuzzy. It has never been litigated, and no one quite knows exactly how it would work out. Uh, there was some belief that it might be used in 2000, or actually 2001, uh, but Gore uh, conceded the presidency to uh, Bush, and so we didn't find out. So there are a number of uncertainties that await us uh, should there be court cases following uh, the election that we're about to head into. We're with Ralph Nurnberger. Ralph Nurnberger will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates three different presentations on the presidential elections and on choosing a vice president. This is such an important subject. These are also fascinating topics, Ralph Nurnberger, and we so appreciate your time. I'm jumping around a little bit, and, but I want to talk to you about the the choosing a vice president topic. You referred to Lincoln's choice, Hamlin, and and what might have happened had that choice not gone the way that it did. And then you talked about the delegates and electors in Florida, which seems to crop up in the news all the time. It's <laughs> when we're talking about presidential elections, but with regard to the VP choice. Is it still about geography? It, it, especially in an era of the internet, it seems like you know we're on to much, much more variety here in terms of the pick. And what does the pick have to do with today? And, and what does the pick have to do with personal chemistry with the nominee? All of those questions kind of, I think, need to be answered. Well, thank you. It's an excellent question. And uh, yes, uh, there were uh, many vice presidential uh, nominees who were selected in order to, I'll put the word in quotes, balance the ticket uh, mm -hmm. geographically. Uh, for example, just going back to the 1800 election, John Adams of Massachusetts chose Pinckney of South Carolina uh, to try and get a national ticket. Similarly, uh, Thomas Jefferson of Virginia 
selected Aaron Burr of New York to try and balance the ticket. Also, uh, Burr controlled the electoral votes of New York because in those days, uh, the electors from New York were selected by the state legislature and not by popular vote, and Burr controlled the state legislature of New York. So geography often played a hand into this. Uh, the most recent example of where this was very significant was John Kennedy selecting uh, Lyndon Johnson. Kennedy realized how close the race against Nixon was going to be and selected Lyndon Johnson because he needed Southern states to be with him. And quite a number of Southern states were concerned about uh, Kennedy's views on civil rights and racial issues. And so putting Lyndon Johnson of Texas on the ballot uh, as the vice presidential candidate uh, helped secure Texas uh, and a number of other southern states without which Kennedy would have lost to Nixon. The election was that close. Uh, as you correctly said, in recent times, geography has played a much less role than it did in the past. Uh, for example, people criticized Bill Clinton in 1992 for selecting Al Gore. Arkansas and Tennessee are adjacent states. Also, uh, they were... Uh, almost the Bobsy twins, uh, both very bright, young, center-left candidates with similar views. Uh, the point, however, again, as you mentioned, is that they worked well together. They shared a good chemistry. And so that was what led uh, Clinton to select Gore as his vice presidential candidate. To take the current uh, vice presidential candidates, I don't think that Trump was at all influenced by the fact that he was from New York and uh, Pence was from Indiana. It didn't really balance the ticket geographically. What he was concerned with with Pence was Pence's uh, very high standing with the evangelical community uh, who uh, listened to Pence's uh, guidance on standing up for Trump, uh, and it seemed to have worked in, in that election. Similarly, uh, Joe Biden, when he was selecting Kamala Harris, uh, I don't think he was concerned about the electoral votes from California, which likely will go for uh, the Democrats anyway. Uh, what he was looking for was someone who would uh, balance the ticket in other ways, racially, gender-wise, and also in terms of the ability to work together. Uh, and so in today's world, where the role of the vice president has taken on larger ramifications than it did in the past, presidential candidates use different criteria than they did to select their running mates in the past, than, than in the past. Mm -hmm. Such a fascinating subject, uh, Ralph Nurburger. I could talk to you for uh, the entire afternoon here, but I, I do want to, I, I do, I know you're very busy and I, and I do want to make sure that you have uh, plenty of time kind of coming, coming up here for your, for your preparation. So I just really have just this one final question. And, and I want to talk to you about, cause we're, just on the eve, really, of the, the first presidential debate, what about VP debates? Do they mean anything? Because I would imagine ha if Pence and Harris square off, that might be something really important, at least this election. But broadly, do they mean anything? What a great question as well. Uh, vice presidential debates are sort of the AAA baseball playoffs <laughs> in election years. They're not the World Series, but they can be just as exciting. I believe that there have been 10 vice presidential debates in the past. I could be off by one or two, but I, it's around 10. 
and they, they have produced some rather remarkable moments, but I don't think that they affected the outcome of the election. Uh, and in fact, uh, interestingly enough, on that point, just uh, a quick comment, Vice presidential candidate Joe Biden in 2008 said not a single voter in America makes their decision on which ticket to vote for because of who the vice presidential candidate <laughs> is. And uh, to, to some degree, uh, that you can say the same about vice presidential debates. The first vice presidential debate took place in 1976. Jimmy Carter's running mate, Walter Mondale, and Gerald Ford's uh, partner, uh, vice presidential partner, uh, Bob Dole, the most memorable exchange came when Dole blamed the Democratic Party for all global conflicts and said all Democratic wars all in this century. And Mondale responded by saying Senator Dole has richly earned his reputation as a hatchet man. I don't think either uh, anyone really voted for that for either Carter or Ford because uh, of the vice presidential candidates. It's interesting that both Mondale and Dole later on got the nominations to run for president uh, from their parties. In 1980, there was no vice presidential debate at all. Carter and Reagan uh, couldn't come to an agreement on a formal debate. They ultimately had only one, and that so it was decided not to bother with a vice presidential. 1984 uh, was the first time that there was a, a female candidate, uh, Geraldine Ferraro, uh, running on a major ticket. And uh, during the debate, George H.W. Bush said to her, let me explain to you the difference between Iran and Lebanon. And she responded, I resent, Mr. Vice President, your patronizing attitude. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps the most memorable moment came after the debate. Bush was caught on an open mic saying that he tried to kick a little ass. And uh, that in turn played out more than the debate itself. Uh, probably the most memorable comment in vice presidential debate history took place in 1988. George H.W. Bush's running mate, Dan Quayle, pointed out that he had as much congressional experience as John Kennedy, uh, whereupon Lloyd Benson, the uh, Michael Dukakis's running mate, said to Quayle, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. You're no Jack Kennedy. And that's mm -hmm. probably mm -hmm. the most famous line in vice presidential. Mm -hmm. But again, he had the best line. He, he clearly won that debate, but Bush won the election and Dukakis lost. 1992, probably the second most famous line in a vice presidential uh, debate. It's the only time that there were three candidates. Uh, Ross Perot ran as an independent, and his running mate, James Stockdale, uh, began Rear Admiral Stockdale, a much parodied line, who am I and why am I here? <laughs> and that led to lots of parodies. Uh, Phil Hartman on Saturday Night Live probably being the best known. 1996, and obviously I'm doing this from memory, so I, I hope I've been getting them you're all. You're doing a great job. Um, was uh, Gore versus Dole's running mate, Jack Kemp, and it was a rather mild debate. Uh, Kemp afterwards was criticized for not being more aggressive. 2000, Cheney Lieberman, I think people don't remember that debate at all, other than that it was in some place called Danville, Kentucky, and wasn't a significant debate. Uh, Cheney Edwards uh, in 2004, the mm. two vice presidential candidates. Uh, Cheney began by saying, Edwards, you're it, it, essentially, you're so insignificant. The first time I ever met you was when I walked on the stage tonight. <laughs> and that sort of undercut Edwards. 2008, uh, you have the Palin effect. Mm. Um, Sarah Palin debating uh, Joe Biden. And there, the significance of the debate, you can remember her best line was, can I call you Joe? Mm -hmm. uh, during the opening handshake. 
But significantly in that debate, Obama did not do well in his first debate against Romney. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of pressure was put on Joe Biden uh, against future House Speaker Paul Ryan. And uh, Biden did so well in that debate in 2012 that he restored the momentum for the Democrats. And then, of course, 2016, uh, Kane and uh, Pence, uh, again, both did well in their debates, but I don't think that the outcome influenced the ultimate election of Trump over Hillary Clinton. Fascinating stuff. A great memory. You did wonderfully on all of those, Ralph Nuremberg. And and we know that the upcoming presentations are going to be equally wonderful. We're going to put links up to where you can find more information about these upcoming presentations. Again, there'll be three with Ralph Nuremberg. All of them are going to be excellent. Ralph Nuremberg, thanks for being generous with your time. This is important stuff. You know, I, I will say this, too. We'd love to have you back. We'd love to talk again about this. Maybe, you know, kind of post-presentation, you can kind of bring us current. Uh, maybe right before the election, that might be a good time to check in with you. But thanks for your time today. What a pleasure it is to talk with you. Well, thank you. It's ter- totally my pleasure. I'd be delighted to join you again. And you have such a wonderful podcast. Uh, I, I can see why so many of the folks who, who tune in uh, do so. So thank you very much. And thank you for letting me ramble on with rather uh, long answers to your good questions. Oh, well, well, you're, you're kind in, in the compliment, but the, the questions, you're the reason that people are paying attention to this stuff. So thank you, sir. Again, my pleasure. My thanks to Ralph Nuremberger, who will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associate Programs three different times. Please check the show notes for the details. My thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please stay safe, practice smart social distancing, and remember, talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.